You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. There's been a lot of uncertainty out there today in the financial markets with Omicron, inflation, potential rate hikes, and now a war in Ukraine. So how can investors make good financial decisions when they don't know what's coming next? I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Well Show. Our guest today may give us some insight on this topic. Michael Frattentoni is MBA's Chief Economist and Senior Vice President of Research and Industry Technology. He's responsible for overseeing MBA's industry surveys, economic and mortgage originations forecasts, and policy development research for both single-family and commercial multifamily markets. And he's here today on The Real Well Show to help us understand what we're facing in 2022. So Mike, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. really appreciate it. Now, you just got back from a multifamily conference. I just got back from a commercial real estate conference. Let's start with you. What did you learn at your conference? Yeah, so our, our CREF conference, uh, it was a very, very optimistic crowd. So uh, we put out our forecast that, you know, we think after a $900 billion commercial and multifamily lending year in 2021, we think in 2022, we're going to crack $1 trillion of commercial multifamily lending. You know, a lot of that's coming from just, you know, incredible growth in property values, particularly on the multifamily side. Well, that's incredible. I was just telling you offline that I was on a debate at the Best Ever Conference in Denver. It's mostly commercial investors. And I was put on the side. They didn't, I didn't get to choose uh, that it would be lower volume this year than last year. And uh, we somehow swayed the audience, even though it's not actually how I, how I thought it would go. But one of the things I had said is, uh, probably the Fed will be raising rates and that could impact the market. But after Jerome Powell spoke to the House today, uh, that it looks like maybe we're not going to be seeing a lot of rate hikes this year. But so, you know, what I heard him say was, you know, definitively 25 basis points at their March meeting, which will be announced on March 17th. And then, you know, going back to their uh, prior meetings, you know, they had been signaling three. And if you listen to Fed speeches, you know, three or four this year was, was sort of the likely betting from Fed officials. Wall Street was saying seven or, you know, or, or more and was looking for 50 basis points in March. Um, you know, I think what Chair Powell has done is sort of walk that back a bit and say, okay, we're going to be cautious. Nimble is sort of his word of the hour here. You know, we're going to be paying attention to what's happening in Ukraine, paying attention, obviously, to the inflation and job numbers here in the U.S., uh, but there is a need to raise rates, but I think they're going to do it sort of methodically and, and no big jumps. Sure. There's so much uncertainty right now. And I believe I heard, and again, this is all new, but that the GDP forecast went down as well. Um, did you hear anything about that? So, you know, in thinking about the impact of the Ukraine situation, you know, essentially, you're taking the 11th largest economy in the world offline, right? You're, you're removing it from the global economy for a time. Um, you know, macroeconomic thinking would say that's going to have two impacts. One, it's going to slow global growth. Two, it's going to raise inflation globally, right? Because with, that, with less trade, 
less ability to bring costs down, that's going to be inflationary. So I think that's a reasonable expectation from this. But I think, you know, you got to be honest here. There is just so much uncertainty. And that's what the market's telling you right now with these wild swings in stock market prices and wild swings in interest rates right now is that there is very far from any consensus about where we're headed over the medium term. Well, what we know is oil prices are up, right? At least there's inflation there. Do you think, this is not real estate related, so you don't have to answer, but do you think that we will become more energy independent that uh, we'll get pumping back up in North Dakota? I mean, what, what do, you, do you see that happening at all? Uh, it's cross-cutting you know, pressures, right? So the, the markets and oil prices would say there absolutely is a need to increase and there would be a healthy return to increasing drilling here. But, you know, the concerns around climate change and ESG and, you know, dollars being funneled away from uh, domestic uh, oil companies would suggest that, that they're having an ever harder time getting the capital they need to do that. So um, it's not going to be a short run fix to, to pump more in the U.S. Uh, we've become, I think, more reliant on imports than was the case just a few years ago. Interesting. Okay, we have some land up in North Dakota, so I wasn't sure if we'd start <laughs> to see it booming there again. Uh, only time will tell, right? So much exactly. uncertainty. Okay, well, at, our, uh, at the conference where I was, uh, there was tremendous optimism, shall we say, just like you said when you went to your conference. One of the things that concerns me a bit for multifamily, I know there's massive demand for housing. What I'm also seeing is a lot of newbies coming in, uh, just maybe not understanding <laughs> some of the challenges that can come with owning multifamily property and not um, you know, putting that into their performance. So do you, would you say that the multifamily sector is overbought or there's room to run there? Yeah. Well, first looking at the fundamentals, uh, rental vacancy rates are as low as they've been in the last four decades. Uh, you know, that is spurring rent growth, you know, depending upon which measure you look at from sort of mid single digits to mid teens. Uh, again, extraordinary uh, for just looking at net operating income of these properties. That, that's in really good shape. And, and then you get to the outlook, right? So when these properties are valued, uh, you know, the, those cap rates have gotten to ever lower territories, you know, and to really justify that, you need that NOI growth to continue for a long time. Um, and then also when investors are comparing putting their money into multifamily assets versus something else. When you know, risk-free rates go up, uh, that gets harder to make that decision, right? And so all the talk we were just having around where the Fed's likely to head and what the impact's likely to be on 10-year US treasuries. And then if you look globally, um, for much of the past couple of years, you know, German 10-year rates were negative. They are positive now. They were as high as 30 basis points until this morning. You know, then now they're back down to zero. But, um, <laughs> you know, at investors around the world, um, you know, before we'd say they, they didn't really have an option. They, they had to find something which gave them a yield. Now, if uh, government securities are going to have a positive yield again, then it's going to be a little tougher to justify those valuations. So I think, you know, from a straight sort of operational standpoint, 
multifamily assets look fantastic just because of rent growth and vacancies being so low. But from a valuation point, it, it's tough to tell. It's going to depend upon that path of rates. Yes. And so just be careful out there. Um, again, I heard somebody at the conference, some group had just purchased a, a value add multifamily in Houston with a one and a half cap. So I thought, boy, that sounds hard. Yeah, exactly. And then there is policy risk too. Um, I was just reading something this morning about uh, Washington, D.C., where I work. Uh, it basically prohibits any eviction for less than $600. What we saw the you know, halt on any evictions through the pandemic that made sense from a public health standpoint, those may linger. Um, with the double digit rent growth that I was talking about, that is causing a number of municipalities to look again into the idea of rent control, which, you know, if you talk to an economist, that's about the worst thing that you can do because it reduces the desire of anybody to build a new apartment building, which is the best way to bring rents down is put more supply right. on the market. Uh, but I think we're going to be seeing more pushes at state and local level for, for rent control. And that obviously will cut right into that uh, economic uh, you know, viability of those projects. Yeah, very good point, uh, especially if we're seeing a younger demographic uh, that maybe tends to lean that way and uh, voting for people who agree with that. Keeping rents down. I mean, we all want to keep rent. I'm mean, not all, but... Uh, of course, it's important that people have affordable housing. It's getting harder and harder to provide that. So what about single family? Most of our listeners are buying one to four units nationwide. Uh, do you see a runway, a further runway for single family? I mean, I know there's still such limited supply, but there's also new supply coming online. Yeah. So you know, for me, I'm coming at this from a mortgage market standpoint. Uh, and so you know, my members in 2020, 2021 had the two largest origination years they've ever had, you know, in the neighborhood of $4 trillion in volume per year, most of that on the refinance side. Uh, what we're looking at in 2022, our forecast is about a third drop in origination volume to $2.6 trillion, refinances dropping by more than 60%. And that's strictly a function of mortgage rates going up. It's already happening. We were already seeing it in the application data. On the other hand, mortgages used to buy a home, we think we're going to set an all-time record this year and go even higher next year. And that's on the back of increases in new and existing home sales and home prices continuing to go up. The biggest risk to that forecast, what you alluded to, is you know, for the past couple of years, struggling with lack of inventory on the market. You know, we saw most recent reading 19% home price growth nationally. That is absolutely not sustainable. We're not getting to those levels like we did in 2006 because credit's too loose. We're getting to those levels because there's not enough homes to buy, right? It's a totally different issue. Mm -hmm. um, it'll be fixed by builders picking up the pace of construction, but they're running into so many supply chain constraints that's tough to do. You know, I looked at the data on permits, on starts, on homes under construction. It, it all looks favorable for this year, even given those supply chain constraints. But for me, sort of the biggest tell is if you look at what we and others are predicting for home price growth in 2022. So in 2021, I said it was 19% home price growth. We're predicting 5%. Someone like CoreLogic is predicting 3%. Someone like Goldman Sachs is predicting 12% growth. 
that is an enormous range <laughs> from people like me who spend you know a lot of time looking at this data and trying to model it to make it come out right. So I think what you should take away from that is tremendous uncertainty here too about the ability of builders to successfully put up enough new units this year to bring home price growth uh, back down to earth. Uh, and then the fact that builders are putting up generally sort of first move up or more expensive units. And the strongest demand is at the entry level with all the millennials reaching uh, peak first time home buyer age. So there's a mismatch there. It can be fixed if people move out of entry level properties, put those on the existing home market for sale and move into you know, new homes. But that's gonna take a little time and not quite sure it'll all line up in 2022. Uh, over the next couple of years, that absolutely is what, what's going to happen. But again, that home price path, very, very uncertain. I uh, would say with a lot of confidence, though, I don't see how home prices go down in 2022, at least at the national level. Um, if we run too hot for too long, 2023 becomes another story. There, there, there does get to a point where you run ahead of your buyers too far. Yeah. Well, my prediction, <laughs> if you care, is Absolutely. that it will it will just depend on the market because it seems like there's still this uh, my you know these migration patterns where people with lots of money go into markets that seem so cheap to them and they drive prices up. I mean, Californians have been doing that for decades. We we did that in Oregon and then Washington, Arizona, and Idaho uh, now. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Now in Texas and and uh, Florida is just booming. Of course, that's probably more of the New Yorkers coming down, but also California. I know so many people who have picked up and left. They want to be by yeah. the beach, but they you know want uh, to pay a lot less for that. Uh, so, would you say that would be true that some areas might still see high price growth, while others not so much? So, uh, you know, I mentioned Idaho, that was the fastest home price growth in the country last year, you know, north of 35%. But, you know, you could not find slow home price growth anywhere in the country last year. It was all at least sort of mid single digits. Um, and it kind of made sense, right? The, the fastest growth where the highest population growth was. Um, so, you know, absolutely, they're, they're gonna be, you know, high-end parts of the market in the Midwest or you know, uh, New York, other places that are losing population that are gonna be more at risk. Um, but you know, I, I would trust someone like you who's more sort of feet on the ground. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at big picture aggregates, which are important for sort of looking at some of the numbers I look at, but you know, absolutely, you could see weaknesses in certain pockets of the market, but I, I just can't see it being widespread given the overall imbalance between supply and demand. Okay, that makes sense. So let's look at the big picture. Again, I, I listened to somebody this morning who thought we were heading towards recession, potentially due to what's happening in Ukraine and, and the, the inflation and the readjustment of the forecast for the GDP. What are your thoughts on, are we headed towards a recession or not? So, I don't think it's likely. So I, I, me and my team get the, the privilege of once a quarter, we're part of the, the Wall Street Journal survey of economists that, that everybody highlights. And a question they always ask is, what's the risk of a recession in the next 12 months? Uh, often we'll give an answer like 10%. So that, that's an unlikely number. Lately, we've been given a number like 20% or 25%. So it's not like it's, it's a you know, in your face kind of a risk, 
Mm-hmm. But anytime the Fed moves from unbelievably, you know, supportive policy to tightening policy, there's just always a risk that they go too far, too fast. And that pushes the economy into a recession. I think that's the bigger risk right now. Mm -hmm. And the Ukraine situation just makes it even more complicated for the Fed because uh, so uncertain about what the global environment is going to be, even if there's not so much direct impact on the U.S. So I think there's a risk of a recession over the next 12 months, but it's not the thing I worry about most. Um, You know, again, I'm, I'm more worried about supply not showing up in the housing market. I'm more worried about uh, you know, a, a, a sort of misfire by the Fed in the sense that the, the market suddenly realizes that they mean what they say and they are going to keep raising rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were to get a big spike in, in longer term rates, that, that's obviously really challenging for the housing and real estate markets. Yeah. I just did a talk at the Best Ever Conference on the changing tides. And you just said, you know, anytime the Fed goes uh, from super accommodating, printing all this money, so much unprecedented amounts of money that is circulating and much of it finding its way to real estate, which is driving up prices, so much capital out there. And then when that shifts, um, <clears throat> it can take a little while because, like you said, it's going to go slowly, but we are in that changing environment. Do you think that the Fed went too far in the accommodation and, and printing so much money? You know, I, I think the Fed uh, acted appropriately in March of 2020. They, you know, did not hesitate to provide all the liquidity the market needed. Um, I think, you know, the CARES Act that Congress, the administration passed, that was amazing. Usually, our our government, for all its strengths, that they don't act quickly, um, particularly when it comes to Congress passing legislation. And they did. And it it was the exact right thing at the exact right time. That was in April of 2020. By the time you get to the other bills that were passed, it might have been a little too much in terms of federal spending that was probably outsized for what was needed by the time we got to 2021. And then I think the Fed's been slow to recognize that there was a little too much stimulus hitting the economy. So I think their their actions were right. Their messaging has been a little slow to adapt for my taste, um, but they all recognize it now. Every single one of them, you hear their speeches, they're saying, yeah, it's time to begin raising rates and shrinking the balance sheet. Yeah, oops, it's not transitory, this inflation. That's exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. And and that's an interesting point because there are still people, economists that I respect out there saying that it's not, it, this is still short-term inflation. It's going to come, go back to normal. And then I hear others say, oh no, we're it's here to stay. Uh, we're probably in a stagflation kind of place, which, you know, I don't know when the last time we, we had stag, stagflation, was it the 80s? That was the 70s, yeah. 70s? Yeah, so, um, you know, you look inside the inflation numbers, the, the headline number at seven and a half, the core number at six, those are the highest in, in four decades. And initially, inflation was getting pushed up by things that you could directly point. This is a pandemic-induced increase in prices, you know, used cars, energy prices, other things that were just a result of supply chain constraints. But now the increases are across everything that consumers are buying. And to what we were talking about, most importantly, it's shelter costs. So costs of renting an apartment, costs of owning a home, together, those account for about 40% of the basket of goods that are core CPI. So 
if that measure is going to keep increasing, even if the pandemic-induced price increases reverse, on net, we're still going to see inflation higher than the Fed likes. And again, we were just talking about rent going up at mid-double digit, <laughs> you know, mid-teens in some markets across the country. The number entering CPI right now is 4%. So the way the BLS measures it, it's going to lag what we all are seeing in our sort of day-to-day -day work in these markets. So I just don't see how the Fed can quickly bring that inflation number down. Our forecast is by the end of this year, it'll still be between three and a half and 4%. And the Fed wants to, to get to two. So that has us uh, expecting the Fed to keep raising rates until they get the Fed funds target to about two and a half. And again, we're starting from zero. <laughs> so whether they get there in a small number of big hikes or you know a consistent, you know stream of small increases over time, <clears throat> I think we're going to at least get to two and a half by the end of this. But you think they'll raise till two and a half? Yeah. Oh my gosh, because I've heard so many different uh, so many different opinions on that. Uh, some say, oh, there's no way they can get past 1% because we'll never be able to pay our, our national debt of $30 trillion. What, what do you think of that? So uh, funnily enough, I was just reading a report from the Congressional Budget Office that was opining on exactly that point, that if, uh, if the 10-year Treasury got to 3.5% in the near term, uh, over the next 10 years, our deficit would be about $2.5 trillion larger, right? So it, it has an impact. It's large. Um, it, it's not sort of out of line with what we've seen in terms of the swings uh, previously. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, but what you'll really notice is that net interest payment on the debt, which is a fairly small line item in the budget right now, will grow to like the size of the defense budget if we get to a path like that. So it's not like we'll be unable to pay it, but it'll start to force some choices in terms of what we spend money on because it'll crowd out other spending. Mm. Wow, that's a, that's a great response. Um, speaking of crowding out other, other spending, if consumers are dealing with inflation and everything that they buy, does that make them less able to buy a home? So. Uh, yes, you know, you would expect that wage growth is gonna, it's gonna be a bit of a spiral here when somebody sees that it's costing them seven, eight percent more on their bills each month, they're gonna go into their employer and in this job market, they're gonna get listened to and say, I need a raise, right? And uh, there have been some recent reports of some companies are moving now to multiple uh, increases in comp. Uh, per year as opposed to just the annual review because people are having these pressures. Uh, you know, measured wage growth is sort of 5%, which sounds good until again, you look at inflation at 7%. So people are falling behind. So is it gonna impact their ability to buy homes? Uh, you know, yes, it makes it harder to save, but I think it's also gonna be a bit of a spur, right? So if their landlord presents them with a 15% increase in rent for the next year, they might go out and start looking and might even be willing to stretch a little further to buy a home than they would have otherwise, because what's the alternative, right? That they're gonna next year be in a worse financial position if they have that 15% higher rent. So it's great that we're talking about both the multifamily and the single family markets, because obviously they're connected and that person right on the margin between, do I stay a renter? Do I uh, become a homeowner? They are comparing, okay, what would my rent be for the next year? 
what would that mortgage payment be? Obviously with mortgage rates moving up, that payment's gonna go higher. And with home prices going up, it does as well. But that rent isn't staying still, <laughs> it's going up, right? And um, you know, the only other thing they can do, and be curious your thoughts on this, you talked about people moving to lower cost housing or moving to other environments. You know, the office situation is key to this too, right? If they don't have to go into the office every day of the week, they don't have to go in two days on a hybrid schedule or something, doesn't that just like greatly increase the geography on which they can look for housing and maybe find something a little less expensive? Are, are you seeing that? Oh my goodness, we're seeing it all over the place. Uh, <clears throat> people had the tremendous flexibility over the last couple of years, but we're also seeing that starting to shift where some companies just want to have their staff back in the office and that that's starting to pick up. So what seems to be more of a, you know, for those who are truly able to be independent, they're in the tech industry or they're consultants and they can live anywhere. It's a wonderful opportunity. They can even go live in, in other countries that are much cheaper and, and make that work and, and uh, still have a, a U.S. salary. Uh, but uh, but in the larger cities like San Francisco, we're now seeing that um, just people spreading out into the suburbs or Sacramento where they can still get into the city in an hour and a half, but they don't have to go every day, maybe just a couple of days a week. Right. Um, so, so the suburbs are definitely um, growing and, and the exurbs, you know, the areas that kind of weren't doing much for a while, they're coming back to life as well. Because people, a lot of people do want to be driving distance from the office if they do have to go in. So it's it's a mix, but at least at the conference I was just at, which uh, we had a uh, one of the economic advisors for, oh, I can't remember, a large commercial brokerage. And he said office is probably the hottest thing right now because the cap rates are still good and mm -hmm. um, and people are wanting to come back to work. So we could see that change over the next couple of years. Yeah, we've been we've sense. been personally a remote company for 10 years. So it was nothing new for us. And I would think that over the last two years, a lot of companies learned how to do that and found online systems and, and structures and ways to make that work. For us, it, it works great. And then we get together every quarter in person. So it could be that some companies really are enjoying not paying that office. You know, for us, it's it's wonderful to to not have to pay for an office. We put that towards our quarterly retreats, bringing everybody together. So again, it could be that some companies have figured it out and they want to stick with it that way and don't want that office expense. But I I spoke to a lot of the commercial uh, companies that were at the best ever, and they're they're expanding their office space. Yeah, yeah. yeah everyone I talked to, it's it's a different story. Which again, to the you know, market uncertainty about where we're headed. Here you have another uncertainty of just, you know, companies, even if they had made a solid decision in September of 2021, we're going to come back in January, you know, that got blown up, right, with the Omicron variant. And, you mm -hmm. know, so now it's sort of reshuffle the deck once again. Okay, well, now, you know, it'll be March or it'll be, you know, April, what, what have you. So I think it's a, it's a, another big question mark on the outlook, but I think it, it absolutely impacts people's housing choices if, they don't have to be in the office every single day. So mm -hmm. curious to see how that evolves. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, what are your predictions for mortgage rates? Uh, we know that we'll probably see the Fed raising rates, but uh, will you see mortgage rates continue to rise? Yeah, 
So, uh, you know, we do a weekly survey uh, with, with a mortgage rate, but the one that the industry sort of focuses in on is the one that Freddie Mac puts out every, every Thursday morning. That's been running about 3.9% in recent weeks. We think it'll be to about four and a quarter by the end of 2022 and four and a half by the end of 2023. Um, if you look at a history, that's essentially getting us back to where we were pre-pandemic. So it's not a high rate by any perspective, but in the fall of 2020, we got as low as 2.7%. So um, that jump is, is why we think refinance volume really is not going to return to the levels between the last couple of years. But four and a half percent, you look historically, that was a rate that home buyers could live with. It wasn't wasn't a problem at all. Home builders can live with it. Um, so I, I think it's it's going to be supportive. I'm a, a bit more worried in the near term about the volatility in rates. You know, if you've got a, a potential first-time home buyer who qualifies for the loan on Tuesday but not on Wednesday, mm -hmm. that's got to be, you know, uh, really messing with with their nerves. Uh, it's a challenging situation for both that customer and that loan officer, and trying to figure, okay, when do you pull the trigger and lock the rate? Uh, that's a, that's an impossible decision to make in today's market. Yeah, and, and frustrating for sellers too. If you know they thought they had a buyer, that could be an opportunity for investors. But it does seem like with with rents going up so much, I did read an article that uh, there are I don't know twenty six markets where it's cheaper to. I'm sure it's more than that, but there's an increase in the um, in the areas that where it's cheaper now to own than to rent. Yeah because yeah. of that. And so maybe with uh, with mortgage rates going up, that could potentially keep some investors out of the market where they're not seeing as good returns. So maybe they back off and and uh, homeowners can come in and, and get more houses. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, labor shortage. How do you see that affecting more supply, uh, bringing in more homes, but also just businesses, businesses that can they afford to survive if they have to keep raising wages? Yeah. So you look across the economy, there's still about 11 million job openings right now. Uh, just as a comparison, that means for every person who's unemployed, actively looking for a job, there are 1.7 job openings. That has never happened before, right? Wow. If, if you're looking for work, it's never been a better time. You know, a joke with some of my, my audiences that, you know, if you have kids living in the basement downstairs, Tell them to get out. This is the time to get a job. Uh, no more excuses. Um, but from an employer's perspective, it's really challenging, right? And so that's why wages are uh, going up as fast as they are and expect that's going to accelerate further. Um, and the closer to home, you, know, you look at the construction industry, that's where it's really binding. You know, builders have been talking for years that they face a number of constraints, you know, shortage of vacant developable lots, shortage of skilled trades workers in particular. Um, now they got the uh, supply chain constraints and lack of windows, garage doors, lumber, what have you, all, all of it impacting the cost and availability of what they need to build. Uh, but that labor constraints, a, it's a real one. Uh, and it's, a, it's, a, it's certainly an issue in terms of that supply potentially coming online. Uh, again, coming even closer to home in, in the mortgage industry, you know, I mentioned our forecast for a big drop in refinance volume. The industry staffed up to handle record years in 2020 and 21. So you're hearing about layoffs in the mortgage industry right now. And so it's 
it's always a bit of a counter cyclical industry to what's going on in the broader economy because it's so rate sensitive. And I think we're seeing that again now. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's tough. All right. Somebody who just got trained and all of a sudden they don't have a job, but there's another job out there for them. Absolutely. Plenty of jobs. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Any other predictions for us that uh, you want to leave our listeners with? Well, thanks. So. I think we covered a lot of territory. It was so nice to talk with you. So nice to talk with you. Thank you for taking the time to be here. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. If you'd like more information on this topic, I'm going to be giving a quarterly update at Real Wealth Network. You can sign up at realwealthshow.com. That's coming up in a couple of weeks. Again, that will be my quarterly update. And you can sign up at realwealthshow.com. It's free to join. And once you do, you'll get access to our investor portal, get referrals to different investor groups around the country who can help you find rental property with property management in place in this crazy wild market. I'm Kathy Becky, and thanks so much for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. We'll see you next time. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.